You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Między wszystkimi historiami jest jedna, której nie słyszałeś. Pełno w niej widm i fantomów. Dlaczego mam uczucie, jak gdybym już tam kiedyś był? Chcę wiedzieć, czy to wszystko mogło się zdarzyć. I tak, i nie. Bo są rzeczy, które są za wielkie, za wspaniałe. Porwania, gonitwy, zdrady. Ja sam nie mogę wyjść ze zdupy. One tylko próbują. Próbują się zdarzyć. Czy znasz historię, której czas już nie zmieni? Czy starczy ci cierpliwości, aby jej wysłuchać? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. Good to be here again. Also back in the booth is Mr. Spencer Parsons. Hello. Great to be here. We wrap up Polish Month on the Projection Booth with a look at Wojciech Haas's Hourglass Sanatorium, based on the 1937 book by Bruno Schulz. The 1973 film stars Jan Nowicki as Josef, a man who travels to the titular sanatorium to see his father and... Things go a little off from there. This is one of those films where I'm not sure we would be able to spoil it for you even if we tried. In fact, it might be better for you to listen to this before watching the Hourglass Sanatorium. Maybe. We're just going to try not to get too inside baseball for you. Jonathan, when was the first time you saw the Hourglass Sanatorium and what did you think? I first saw it on DVD in about 2012, I think. It was when the... uh UK DVD was released, and I think it was the first time it had it had ever had a, a home release actually in the UK. I was quite excited by it because I I already had read Bruno Schulz's books, like the two books that he published, and uh, I was a big fan of his writing. Yeah, I was really impressed by it. I, I I was really taken with the imagery. I remember, you know, particularly like the sequences that stood out for me were the I think like the whole sort of opening sequence you know, the credit sequence and then the scene in the sanatorium and then also the waxwork uh, sequence as well. On the other hand, I kind of didn't feel that it was like very Schultzian. I, I think maybe because at the time I was really a big fan of the Quay Brothers uh, adaptation of um, Bruno Schultz's other book, Street of Crocodiles. And I kind of ha- maybe had a different mental image of Schultz's world, I think, from the world in Hass's film. I felt that Schultz's world somehow to me, when I think of it, it's a more kind of shadowy, mysterious world, whereas I feel that like Hass's film is more, at least this is how I felt originally, that Hass's film is more kind of spectacular, even a little bit psychedelic, a little bit more kind of outlandish. But I think watching it again and, uh, you know, having had the opportunity to watch it another couple of times since then, I think I've kind of come to admire, you know, I think just how well Haas uh, manages to adapt, you know, what is really quite an unadaptable, quite a sort of impossible to film piece of literature. So, yeah, I think I've come to admire it much more, really. How about you, Spencer? I actually only saw it for the first time upon your invitation to um, to talk about it because I, I like to have the excuse for that sort of adventure. So I had never heard of it, and I had only passing familiarity with Bruno Schultz's uh, writing, though 
obviously I've read a fair bit of it since then, and I'm crazy about Schultz. And I will say I have a similar feeling right now about how this works as an adaptation of Bruno Schultz and what to do in terms of a fairly impossible seeming kind of text and like what is it that comes through as adaptation and how is a, is kind of an, an interesting question for me with this movie. I also watched this just for the show. I was familiar with it from, I don't know, a ways back. I know Martin Scorsese is a big fan of this and I think he helped um, either get it restored or bring the restoration around in the States. And it was kind of a handful of films that he uh, showed. And I think Haas's previous film, or another, I should say another Haas film, the Saragossa Manuscript, was kind of the same thing. Uh, I know with that, I think Jerry Garcia paid for that to get restored. But I know Scorsese is a, well, obviously he's a film fan, and he wanted to bring more attention to these Polish films. And the Haas, uh, we have talked about the Saragossa Manuscript, and so I was excited to finally sit down and watch the Hourglass Sanatorium. And my goodness, I was not disappointed. Even though the spaces are very important to Saragossa Manuscript, it feels like it's a little bit more open, whereas this film film feels so claustrophobic so many times. I mean, to the point where we've got our main character crawling under beds and you just feel how tight the situation is. I really appreciated this and it was such a different film in that it was color in the way that he messes with the color and uses color throughout this whole film. Just everything is so gorgeous about this movie. I could sit here and just turn the sound off and watch the movie and just enjoy it as being this very painterly masterpiece. It just it is incredible to see how he does it and then the way that he plays with themes and that there are echoes of things from the beginning to the end. And I know that it is really easy to say that a film feels like a dream, but I've never seen a film that feels more dreamlike than this. And I'm saying that as a fan of David Lynch, of so many other filmmakers, and this really captures that idea of things having their own logic and being able to turn on a dime. It's that sense of fluidity as well, isn't it? And I think, as you say, it's that combination of claustrophobia and of this sense of constant shifting of scenes and of spaces without you really being aware of how it's doing that. And I, watching it again, I was able to kind of just like break that down and see how is he changing the scenery? How is that happening? And I think that's really intricate. That is part of, I think, how well it adapts Schultz's world because I think Schultz is all about fluidity and this state of never quite being sure where you are what you're dealing with and whether you're dealing with a metaphor whether you're dealing with something that's physically real and I think the film achieves that sense that very dreamlike sense of you know never quite being sure you know where you are what space you're in I mean I found myself thinking it was as I was watching it you know it's really impossible to say, you know, how many sets did they build for this? You know, and in some cases, I mean, did they build like a whole set and then just move through it? Or were they going from one set to another one and just using kind of like editing tricks and things to bring you from one into the other? And I think it, it does create that sense of indeterminacy that you never really know sort of where you're going to. Yeah, and uh, while I can spot a fair number of editing tricks that uh, manipulate the space here, I will say I was surprised at the number of times that I looked at something and went to play it back, and I was flummoxed at how it was done. 
there are some real magic tricks in this movie with camera movements through space to move from one space into another in some fairly long takes. And this is all, you know, sort of pre CGI. Uh, so we, we, you know, won't, won't work, um, you know, like 1917, uh, where actually I would say that I spotted most of the CGI sutures, uh, in the film. I, I was actually, uh, much more surprised and mystified, uh, here than, than by some more recent work that has had, you know, long take editing tricks that deranged space. Yeah, I, I found myself kind of going back and looking at the just the length of some of the takes and thinking, you know, how, you know, how long is this shot lasting for? And sometimes it feels like just in your mind that you, you're watching like several shots. And then when you look at it again, you realize actually that this is like one whole take. And it's just that incredible command of the camera movement, of the kind of layering of objects and decor within a shot and of people and it's so seamless. And as you say, yeah, pre-CGI, you know, there was no, there was no, uh, no escaping really from that kind of, you know, I guess, uh, just physical command of the space. Yeah, a lot of that camera movement reminded me of Ophuls with the way that he would set up different shots throughout. And you would realize that you had moved from the master shot into a close-up just by a camera move rather than through a cut. And when there were cuts, a lot of times I was expecting them to almost be like trick cuts. He would be talking to someone. I was expecting it to cut to someone else. Like you knew who he was talking to, but then I was waiting for it to be another person, but he doesn't do that. So I was almost surprised by how logical things are inside of this dreamlike world. Ophuls is a really good uh, point of comparison here in terms of the camera movement, because even though this is very different, there are, there's a kind of strategy that both filmmakers use, which is that the the cuts when Ophuls does go uh, does cut uh, in in a movie like Earrings of Madame De, quite often the cuts are almost deliberately boring in this movie, mm. and, and it was the same here. These cuts that are kind of like almost deliberately like boring textbook kinds of cuts to get you wrong footed and keep you from getting ahead of the filmmaker at all. There's such a sense of dread in this film as well. And because of the way that he's doing these cuts, I'm expecting it to cut to something awful because there are so many times where I'm just expecting him to turn a corner and run into something horrific, even though we don't necessarily get that. It, there are some images where it's just like, okay, this is pretty bad, but there's nothing overly gory or gross or just shock for shock's sake. It keeps you on your toes, even though you expect the boogeyman to come running out. But instead, we never get that. And that almost makes it worse. It's just this feeling of something bad is happening or going to happen. And I think that also plays into this whole idea of this being written in 37 or, or earlier and coming out in 73. And the way that Haas, I mean, any, uh, if you've seen Sargo's manuscript, he plays with time so much and he is definitely playing with time with this as well. Not only the time in the movie, but also playing with time as far as this coming out in 73 and being able to look at events that happened after 37 and being able to f infuse the film with all of these things that weren't maybe necessarily in Schultz's text, but he brings them out or adds them onto it. And then even plays against not just World War II, which happens shortly after 
Schultz writes his book or the book comes out, but also 1968, which God help me, I talk about it so much. But in Poland, there were all of these purges of Jewish people, which was also very reminiscent of what happens in World War II. And Haas is able to speak to that as well as to World War II. It's this whole idea of hiding a message inside of his films, which is very easy to do when you are dealing with such surrealistic imagery. Going back to that idea of the film as something that has a kind of feeling of a horror film, um, which I think is true. And as you say, it's not one where you have like an obvious sort of horror scene or, or, or an obvious kind of monster figure. But I guess we could say that that ultimate horror is the anticipated horror, isn't it, of the Holocaust and uh, what struck me again watching it again was just that ending where you have that kind of that quite frightening use of sound at the end, that kind of rising sound, which I think is really anticipating what's going to happen. And um, I think that's really the crucial thing that has adds really, I guess, in retrospect to the uh, the stories, because although Schultz obviously was Jewish, I guess he was not really a Jewish writer in the sense that he dealt explicitly with Jewish life, and he's too idiosyncratic in a way, I think, to be seen as that. But I think Haas was quite keen to bring these extra associations and in a way to make the film, I guess, kind of a tribute to that world that had disappeared um, of kind of Jewish life in Galicia or in Poland. And um, yeah, I think that's really a conscious uh, decision, really, to kind of emphasize that those aspects and I think to as you say to kind of apply these historical resonances and I think you know you can see it as a film that's really intimating what's going to happen in the second world war and I think also you can see it as a commentary on contemporary Poland I mean I think those incredible you know derelict spaces throughout the film they kind of remind me of what we see in a lot of other Polish films I think at the same time I mean if you look at like some of the battle scenes in uh, on the silver globe or in um Peter Shulkin's uh, science fiction films. I mean, it feels very much like the, the same environment, this kind of really grotty, dilapidated world of, of, of empty shops, empty streets. And uh, yeah, I think we can see that as a reflection of the kind of uh, rather troubled Poland of, of the 70s. There is a way that it does match the strangeness of the Bruno Schultz uh, stories in in the uh, you know like Mike, what you mentioned about how it has this feeling of dread and that it gives you this expectation that something really horrible is around the corner. The Bruno Schultz stories are really are really fascinating because of how how sort of diaphanous they are as as stories. You know, sometimes the the story will be more of of like a mood or an atmosphere more than a series of events, and there there are connections, for instance, that that one could make between Schultz's stories and Kafka's stories, uh, and a lot of people have made that comparison in in the work, and there are a lot of reasons why that that could be taken as fairly obvious. But one of the things that's quite beguiling about uh, Schultz's stories is the sense that that the horror of one particular sentence is not necessarily leading to the horror that is in the next sentence. There's a way in in, in which uh, while everything is kind of connected, there's a constant sort of unpredictable transformation going on. Whereas in Kafka, we have, you know, more sturdy traditional narratives, at, at least in, in like the metamorphosis or in the penal colony, like, uh, you know, of kind of escalating horrors. 
in Schultz's stories, uh, quite often we find this this like sense of a constant transformation, which is dreadful, but isn't necessarily about creating suspense or creating expectations that will then be either delivered in a particular way or dashed in in a way. They don't kind of have that tight parable structure that a lot of Kafka work has. And in this movie, there is this sense in in which the camera work in relationship to people is constantly transforming. And so this is like one of the things that was fascinating to me in watching the film. At first, I I was kind of like, oh, okay, so this is a very florid style. The colors are really bright and it's designed. And we have these like big camera moves. This is not the kind of surrealism that these stories are. But I I was really surprised at a second look going, oh, no, this is actually kind of closer to the way that the stories work than I would have expected. Because the stories Mm -hmm. to me felt kind of lower key in their initial address. And I think that is a big difference between the stories and the film. But then there is there is this way that the film is is more of a development of atmosphere and confusion and uh, a character's dreamlike sort of progression um, that actually works quite a bit like these stories, uh, in, uh, even though the, the, the literary sources is, is more low key on the surface. Yeah, we could almost say that like the film is doing with style, I guess, what the stories do with physical reality. And I think a lot of those effects in the stories, I mean, would be very hard to translate cinematically. I mean, for instance, there is a uh, a sequence in the uh, Hourglass uh, story where um, Joseph, the main character, unwraps a, a telescope and then he's kind of unfolding this telescope and it gradually turns into this kind of long tunnel and then ultimately becomes a kind of vehicle uh, with which the character kind of like makes this dramatic exit out of the building. And I mean, you just could not really translate that. I guess pre-CGI at least, you could not really translate that really well cinematically. Yeah, it's like Haas, I think he's using colour, he's using camera movement, lighting and so on, I think to achieve, as you say, that constant sense of shifting realities or shifting moods. Spencer, you brought up Kafka, and I think it's very clever that he names the character Joseph. So kind of after Joseph K., but then also playing with Joseph from the Bible and having the father's name be Jacob, which was the father and son. And then I love that Joseph was an interpreter of dreams and that we're dealing again with these very Jewish characters and that the Judaism plays into so much of this. I also like that we are... And I, I'm sure that someone has done this. I'm sure that someone has gone through the Hourglass Sanatorium, the book, the collection of short stories, and taken and, and found all of those places where Haas has taken pieces of the different stories and then brought them into the Hourglass Sanatorium, the movie. You mentioned the short story that is part of the collection of the Hourglass Sanatorium. Uh, there's also uh, another short story in there called Spring, which brings a lot of things. But uh, there are little bits and pieces. It's almost like Haas read the book, just remembered it, and wanted to write down his memories that, rather than necessarily being super faithful to things. Though there are passages that are directly lifted, there's dialogue that is lifted, sometimes it's attributed to other people. So I like that way that he adapts this and that he is not 
being super faithful, but I think in this kind of uh, an adaptation, in this kind of a movie, it really just, again, lends a strangeness to it that some people are saying lines that another person might say. And yeah, reading those stories, it really made my head spin in a good way just because they were just these, some of them were almost like a little sketch as far as, you know, there's this thing that happened and, you know, it might only be two pages long, but it takes you and transforms the world into something completely otherworldly, just something else that uh, I was really impressed by what Schultz was doing at this time and then what Haas was able to shape out of that work. That's really true about the approach to adaptation. And I think, as you said, on the one hand, it's quite faithful in the sense that I think most of the dialogue in the film does come from Schultz in some way. And as you say, often it's passages of actual textual narration by Schultz that are kind of put into the mouths of a lot of the characters. So I guess most of the time it is his own words. But as you say, like the approach is very free. For me, I think the masterstroke was taking the hourglass story that's in the collection, which I think in the book is kind of like midway through or sort of towards the end. And it's kind of in a, in a way slightly hidden in the collection. And then I think taking that and then using that as this kind of framing device, I think was a great idea because you get that great opening, which I think really sets the film up well. It sets up the themes and the tone, and then it's something that you can kind of come back to, and it serves as, as this kind of motif whereby you're already introducing these ideas about time and about the way time has been completely disrupted. Insofar as a movie like this does have any kind of point of orientation, I think it's that kind of circular, that kind of framing structure that gives it that. So I think that was a really great idea that he took that story and used that as the sort of beginning and end because it was interesting like going back to the stories and I'd forgotten like how much a lot of the first half of the book is really descriptive and a lot of it is just impressionistic narration about spring and about colours and about the romance of books. Probably it would have been impossible to take that approach for the film really. The way that he's arranged uh, the, the, the stories and the reference points here Again, it's literature versus uh, cinema. That kind of uh, more descriptive work at the beginning uh, might not really help uh, with a film. So creating a bit of a more traditional frame uh, that can carry us from something that feels a bit a, uh, a bit more like a traditional story into uh, you know work that that functions more more descriptively is is interesting. And then additionally the. Uh, you know, time is really big in Schultz's work, uh, you know, the transformations of time and the ideas that he has in different stories, um, both the, the kind of title story here. But uh, there's another one that deals with the idea of, of stolen time, but not just not stolen time in the traditional, like colloquial sense of but this like real I, or maybe the translation was purloined time. Uh, but but that um, but there's there's this uh, this sense of um, time being this like mutable, transformable thing um, and of the basic setup of, of the father not being dead yet because he exists in this place. Uh, you know, the sanatorium uh, has set itself up separate from the time in the place that Joseph came from, that in the time that the place that, where Joseph came from, well, yes, the father is dead. But in the time here, the father is still alive. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. 
He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. And there's even some dialogue about, oh, so does it work like this? And the doctor's like, you don't get it at all. Um, it's and and the way the way that space and time uh, become kind of figures for each other in in this film. You know, the way that they're that you know, space turns into a kind of time, and time turns into a kind of space in in these uh, these, these strange camera movements and edits is is quite fascinating. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the actual narrative structure of this. You've, we've alluded to it a little bit. We start on a train, which is, you know, fairly, okay, we've seen this before, the journey to another place. The train itself is very interesting that it is so many cobwebs, just everything looks decrepit. The train is not full of people, but there are a lot of people on this train. A lot of them aren't sitting on the seats. They're sitting on the floors. And we are really introduced right off to the idea of these people being Jewish. There's a lot of people that have the payout, the side curls, and some of them look like they're dead. The pallor of these people is gray, and there is a conductor that we see who wears a candle around his neck. And as we see him more and more through the movie, it became clear to me that he's got these contacts in that make him look like he's blind, almost like a white, milky type of thing going on over his eyes. It's very, very striking. And he is the one that tells Joseph about this whole idea of time being strung together in these different things, but there are alcoves, these sidelines where time doesn't uh, work the same way, these illegal places. And that definitely seems to be where the sanatorium is. And I was reminded a lot of Uri Herz's Beauty and the Beast with the way that Yosef gets off the train and goes to this decrepit place that is completely overgrown and just falling apart. No one seems to be there. Eventually, he meets a nurse who is adjusting her top like she had just either fended off an attack or had just had sex. And I think we're we're supposed to figure out that she and the doctor are um, in flagrante quite often. We do meet the doctor who starts to tell Yosef this whole idea of time working differently here. And I did find it interesting, too. You talked about how time works differently at the sanatorium. But he also says, in your country, your father is dead. Here, he's still alive. And that is what sets us up with all of this stuff that is going to take us into these stories as we go ahead. But one other thing I want to mention real quick is that when Yosef is first at the sanatorium, he looks out the window and he actually sees himself coming to the sanatorium with a childhood friend. Rudolph, I believe, is his name. And it kind of has Haas setting up two narratives that are happening at the same time, because I think there are times where we are seeing Joseph and Rudolph together, and that is actually a different, say, timeline or narrative thread than what we see the rest of the time. I hate using time so often. The rest of the film. So there are moments where it is that story, and there are moments where it is the other story, which Wojciech Haas loves to make things complicated in a good way. And I love that there's this idea that you're actually watching two movies in one. That sequence at the beginning is interesting because it reads at first 
as he is seeing his own arrival again. And because of the ideas of time that have been presented uh, up to that point, it's kind of like, oh, he's in some kind of recursive loop. But then this child comes along and changes it. And it's obviously then a different timeline. It's not just that he's seeing himself arrive uh, from a different angle, but that he's seeing something different happen with himself from that particular angle. Yes, I think in the uh, story, I think uh, Schultz mentions the idea that I think the nature of time in this uh, environment or in this world of the sanatorium, it's not just that it's malleable or that you can set it back, but it also is warped and it doesn't it doesn't operate according to any kind of consistent rules and so it allows for all these kind of glitches and i guess parallels of events and um yeah i think there's a sense in which we can almost read the sanatorium as you say as a kind of parallel universe and uh one of the things that i was not sure about i think watching it again was uh to what extent the events that we're seeing sort of after the first scene in the sanatorium is whether these are things that Joseph is imagining or he's kind of replaying in some way within that space or whether it's a series of flashbacks or whether it's just that time has got got out of control and it's just following this completely non-linear course but I think there's yeah I think there's a deliberate ambiguity around that. Obviously we talked a lot about how space gets messed with but uh, there's a really Big change, and I, I guess this is this is a little bit the way that I watch something as a as a filmmaker. I, so so I confess that this might get to me in a way that's a little bit different uh, from from how it does for for a lot of people. There was a certain point at which I just I felt like, oh, okay, so this is an interior movie. Even though we've seen briefly an exterior in the film, we're going to be in this this like movie set for the rest of the time, and then all of a sudden, over the course of this this like. Uh, this camera move, we go from out uh, from indoors to outdoors, uh, but not just from indoors to outdoors, but to uh, what appears to be a very different place. Um, and that that outdoors seems to be developing into an entirely different continent. Like that that we that we go from the sanatorium in in Europe uh, to this place that I, I I'm not sure uh, how to define, but seems to combine you know, qualities and people from uh, many different places at once. That exterior, while it has uh, the naturalistic quality of any exterior, is also, uh, you know, sort of an intensely designed backlot kind of set that is as striking as, as all the interior studio work. I'm also very impressed by the idea that when Joseph is with Rudolph, I think and at other times as well, especially when he meets uh, the woman named Adela, I believe that he is a child at those points. And even though he is played by the same character, but and not necessarily acting completely young, but I think we are to assume that there are many points during this story that he is a child, especially the way that he is peeking at Adela and the way that she catches him. It feels like this is a memory. You mentioned that that sometimes these are flashbacks and this feels very much like this is something that he's remembering because there's this idea of this um, uh, communal place where Joseph's father, where Jacob has 
a store that is set up, uh, and he deals in textiles, I believe. Though it's very interesting, he says that it's right next to the optometrist's place, and we get eyes and sight and all of this. I mean, the idea that one has to close one's eyes in order to dream and to sleep, I think in this one, we are being challenged with that, and it's the idea of the eyes being open and dreaming at the same time. Because when we meet the father, he is asleep. And there are so many times where, well, obviously this whole thing feels like a dream, but there are so many times where people will talk about people being asleep. And even when we meet the nurse, she says that it is always night there and that the doctor's sleeping the first time that Joseph comes. I love that they have this communal area, and that's where Joseph is climbing this ladder. And again, Haas loves... um things that are above and below and playing with that as well and him climbing up this ladder in order to uh, peek at this woman and their whole scene together is just remarkable. I love this woman and her just uh, disregard for all social norms. It's Jacob's ladder as well, isn't it? The whole kind of biblical uh, narrative and uh, yeah, I love that. Uh, the way that scene shifts as well, because you have the men chanting and doing what looks like to be a kind of religious ritual and something very spiritual. And then it turns into the scene of kind of like erotic fascination. And they're kind of basically they're all there sort of looking upwards, but they're looking upwards to Adela's bedroom. I think that whole idea of idolatry is very important, I think, in Schultz, because he, uh, I believe, published a book of drawings called The Book of Idolatry, and I think had this quite fetishistic interest, like in feet. And I think the way he portrays himself as his alter ego in the drawings often is he's kind of like looking up at these glamorous women. And uh, I think you have, you know, I think a nice way of translating that cinematically, you have the ladder, and then you have Joseph going up. And as you say, I, I get that sense too, that I think he is meant to be a child in those scenes. And uh, I think it's kind of clearer in the stories that Adela is like the family servant or the family maid. And basically as a child, I think Joseph is just kind of sexually fascinated by her. Yeah, I, I get that same sense really that at that point, he is being addressed as a child. And likewise, I think in some of the scenes with the mother too, um, and there's one moment where I think he says to her, you know, he says, you, you treat me like a child. And um, I think another critic has mentioned this, actually, it's not my own <laughs> observation. But I mean, that could be that could be a child speaking. I mean, a child could say that. And he tends to act a little bit disobediently with the mother sometimes. And that does seem very childish, I think. I'm curious as far as Bianca, the other woman, because we have three main women in this. We've got Adela, we've got the mother, and we have Bianca. And Bianca, it feels to me like that was one of his first crushes. And the way that he talks about her and makes up stories about her, and I love this whole idea. There's this weird theme in here of Mexico as well. <laughs> There's Rudolph has... Where should I begin? There's a fascination with books inside of this movie that was adapted from a book. There's a fascination with books and with paper and this whole idea of Rudolph having this book that has all of these stamps in it. There's that. There's also all of these papers that he finds in Adela's room. And 
it kind of reminded me of one of the first stories from um, Hourglass Sanatorium where a um, man is almost doing this um, – uh, what's the word the, when you write without any sort of uh, – it's almost like being possessed by a spirit and, and drawing, and he's it's constantly getting paper. Automatic writing automatic writing it's almost like automatic writing or automatic drawing and he's just constantly looking for paper so he can draw all these things on there and he the way that uh joseph from the movie is scavenging around in a dayless bedroom and looking for these papers and it feels like he's you know going to unlock the secrets of the universe by finding these papers rudolph has this book that's filled with stamps and at one point he sees a stamp from new mexico and he starts talking about how you know, there's always going to be another Mexico, so there can't be a new one because there always will be a new Mexico. And then he starts to spin this whole story about Maximilian and talking about the history of France and the the betrayal of Maximilian and all this. And then suddenly Bianca becomes a daughter of Maximilian. And I love the, just the way that even inside of this movie, he starts to spin these stories. Yes, I love the way that Haas preserved that aspect. And I think maybe that comes from the fact that I imagine Haas, too, had that kind of same kind of like bibliophilia. And when you think of like Saragossa manuscript, I guess that's also about something being derived from this marvelous book or this marvelous manuscript. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, very true to, I think, Schultz's sensibility where, I mean, I think the first story in Hourglass, the Hourglass collection is called The Book, isn't it? And I, I think uh, it's this idea of this kind of primordial book that I think Joseph saw when he was a child and that somehow this is at the origin of everything and it's this all-encompassing thing and I guess then the stamp album takes over and this becomes this you know this 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 I guess stepping stone to all these dreams and all these imaginings about different countries and um yeah, I th- and and then as you say I think the scraps of paper as I remember in the story I think are meant to be um, I guess just basically pages from catalogs or they're just basically these adver- advertisements for these kind of like wonder, uh, wonder cures or these wonder, um, uh, inventions. And so, I mean, in a way, completely prosaic things, but I guess they become these means for him to develop these imaginings. And, um, yeah, I love that idea of the stories within the stories. And as you say, he sort of conjures up this whole sort of narrative around Bianca. And we never really kind of get to the bottom of it. There are all these kind of mysterious references out there to Mr. Uh, is it Monsieur de V and uh, to, yeah, as you say, the Archduke Maximilian, which I think is where that fascination with Mexico comes from, because I think the Archduke Maximilian was the brother of Franz Josef. And I think at one point was appointed the emperor of Mexico. So I think that's where that all sort of ties together in some way. But uh, yeah, I, I kind of like the fact that it's it's kind of kept mysterious, isn't it? It's almost like it in itself, it is a series of little fragments of a story that are never quite, they never quite come together. Yeah, Mr. DeVee and his whole collection of, are they mannequins? Are they wax figures? Are they robots? Are they actually alive? It's just it's so incredible, this whole collection of people and that they keep coming back. I was, I was really happy the second time that they showed up because the first time is just, well, it's pretty damn creepy and it feels like a wax museum. And then suddenly you start to look at these folks and it's like, are these actual actors or are they mannequins? Is it a mix of both? And then the way that they move, 
are they autonomous or are they just figures in a museum? What are these things? And then, yes, that one of them is Maximilian, and it's just okay, and that he is able to use the words from the stamps as a way, almost like magic words, because we have him saying magic words earlier in the film, like abracadabra and these things, and then he's able to bring that back, and suddenly he's able to use the names on the stamps in order to revive these automatons and create an army of them. Speaking of um, your I Hurt, uh, this reminded me a lot. I think the first mannequin scene reminds me a lot of the scene in The Cremator with the Chamber of Horrors. And I think, again, it's a brilliant way of representing that idea of this uncanny state. And again, uh, completely true to Schultz, I think, where, you know, you get this sense that, I mean, these people or these these figures are in some weird sense are still alive, even even though they are described as waxwork figures. And uh, yeah, I think it's really well done the way that I think some of them, I mean, some of them are kind of like more obviously actors than others. And there's a slightly different approach to the makeup or to the, uh, the way that they look. I mean, I think like the, the Maximilian waxwork, I mean, is more obviously sort of artificial, but in other cases, they're a bit more, they're a bit more obviously human. And I think there's that kind of nuance that makes it kind of uncertain doesn't it really it's like some of them you can say well yeah that's that's an actor in other cases i'm not so sure and uh, yeah i think that's another way in which he kind of represents that kind of liminal state that i think schultz always likes to present backing up a little bit to the idea of uh you know text and manuscripts and libraries and whatnot I, maybe maybe i'm going out on a limb here but the <laughs> but the, the form of this uh encourages me to to make some very strange free associations the way the way that these elements can come together with this idea of uh, of of living in death and death and living, uh, you know, and kind of simultaneity, it, it, it sort of there's there's that um, that passage where he looks through the hole and he sees the mother and there's there's this you know voice suddenly narrating it's my dead mother she lives here and then tells about how you know inside inside her are all these ghosts and spirits and larvae and chrysalises and it's really interesting because uh you know the direction that that little piece goes you know and, and this is very much you know Schultz kind of text uh, it, it text is is that okay so she has all this all these spirits inside her and uh and and then the the next piece is about how she takes them into her dream and uh and sleeps with them uh, but then additionally, that this is a kind of, you know, uh, burden. It, 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 that's why she's so sad is that uh, she has all these lives inside her. Um, so there's a there's a way in which one one little incident like that, one little bit of the text kind of opens up the idea of all the lives that can be inside of uh, of, of one person through dream, through experience, uh, through what they read, you know, going back to the idea of text and libraries and whatnot, how much can be contained and that this this movie is kind of visually representing uh, how that works if all these are going on uh, more or less simultaneously, or or having a sense of all all these things kind of hitting you at once, uh, or at least several of them at once in sequence. Well, it's like she's living with all of her ancestors as well, and this whole idea of so many people have come before and. You know, the, when we have this uh, banquet that happens at one point, it feels like it is 
a scene of all of these ghosts sitting down to dinner because, and again, that they are all Jewish people. It feels like it's really speaking to a time that will never happen again. As I was watching this, I kept thinking of uh, Fiddler on the Roof and the scene where Tevyev uh, tells uh, Golda about uh, his quote-unquote dream, which he's making up whole cloth, but suddenly she's inside of his dream. And just the set decorations, the uh, people, the Jewish people uh, coming back from the grave, sitting up on the, the beers, uh, the man who's covered in uh, cobwebs starting to move, and just the makeup and all those things just really, I, I kept thinking, well, when was that made versus this? That actually came a little bit earlier than this. Um, so I was kind of surprised. Yep. I thought maybe, uh, Jewison had seen Hourglass Sanatorium or it might be vice versa that Haas had seen that because just it was very, very striking to me just how that one particular scene and the way that the colors desaturated and everything kind of speaks to these scenes where we have, there's one moment where uh, we have a street scene and he's down below looking up and we have all these people running, all these Jewish people running. And I'm just like, okay, this looks like it's right out of the ghetto. I had that same thought and I felt, uh, I felt like, Oh, it, it, is this, is this really a connection? Or is it just that like, is it just that anytime, you know, that, uh, that I, as, as a goy see, um, <laughs> the, the, uh, you know, dancing uh, Hasidic men that I instantly go to. <laughs> my my one point of reference. Um, uh, it's not the not truly my one point of reference, but visually, you know, Fiddler on the Roof obviously pops up. But it did. Yeah, you're right. It, it makes me wonder about the the potential, um, you know, influence there uh, for for the imagery of Fiddler on the Roof. And you know, that said, you do a short uh, a search for uh, Bruno Schultz. Uh, and you get a lot of Isaac Basiva singer coming up al- uh, alongside, um, as as well as as well as Kafka. And I think in that scene with the feast, as you say, I think, and and as you get into that sort of like that later, uh, I guess like the last third of the film, you know, you do get, I guess, insofar as it's possible in this film of so many changes and transformations, you know, you do get some sense of finality. I think in that sequence and a sense of mournfulness and. Uh, also the scene where the kind of Bianca story kind of comes to an end and uh, Joseph says that he's basically going to free everybody and it's like his dreams and his imaginings are over and it's almost like a moment of self-recrimination or of repentance, isn't it, of these imaginings. And then I think in the next, uh, at the next moment, uh, an official comes and tells him that he's basically arrested because one of his dreams was not approved of by the authorities. And then you could move from that into that amazing last kind of, I guess, like the last 25 minutes or so where you really get this uh, sense of, of death and of complete doom, really, I think, don't you, in those final sequences in the sanatorium. I think you start to get all that um, imagery of graves and of, I think, where you, you get the scene where, where Joseph seems to be in this kind of like open grave yeah, and and then you see you do actually see the father finally die because he's making this kind of historical comment. I mean, I think there is some sense of finality in that. With the whole thing about his dreams not being approved, it seemed to take us right to 1973, and that Haas would create so many things throughout his entire career, but especially with this, these works of art that were being critical of the authorities, and here we are, communist Poland, 1973, where he is actually forbidden from 
taking this movie to Cannes and has to secret it out of the country where it wins the jury prize at Cannes, but his dreams are not approved. You, they do not meet with the authorities' uh, approval. And it just, it, like I said, it seems to be playing with so many different time periods and taking us right to the present with that kind of idea of you are dreaming things that are not approved. You are thinking uncouth thoughts. Like the moment where Joseph basically renounces his interpretation of the of uh, the Book of Stamps, it's almost like a kind of a self uh, self recrimination, isn't it? It's almost like that that process that artists had to go through, I guess, in many uh, cases, like in Czechoslovakia or in Poland, where they would have to kind of uh, make a kind of a, a, an admission of supposed ideological mistakes that they've made and it feels a little bit it feels sad i think that moment because yes it's like he's renouncing something and then the next moment he's being reprimanded he's being arrested and yeah i think there are a lot of those kinds of parallels i mean it's interesting because in some cases they are in the stories but i think because of the context when the film was made i think it does have that added resonance as well really one other touchstone for me with this this movie uh, and as an adaptation problem, a comparison with another movie, but I think speaks to this notion of, of dreams not being sanctioned um, uh, would be uh, uh, David Cronenberg's adaptation of uh, uh, William Burroughs' Naked Lunch and the, the sort of um, creation of, of, of these uh, alternative spaces and, and the way that in, in that particular case, that's an imagination of of one's own sexuality is what the, the story is about versus uh, the imagination of what not, might not be politically uncouth, but the the sort of um, you know use of uh, uh, interzone within this the, within the the fictional narrative uh, to compare with uh, Tangier as the real place where where Burroughs went, and then creating both New York and uh, Interzone within uh, a single interior studio space. This movie reminded me a little bit of, uh, uh, of some of the, the, the strategies that I was more familiar with from, uh, from Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. And I think it's always good, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, repression in Eastern Europe, uh, you know, from communism, uh, I, I think it's really, uh, you know, good to go to, um, you know, uh, similar um, uh, imaginings that are uncouth uh, in our own culture in America and within, uh, the, you know, uh, Western capitalism. Yeah, I kept thinking of uh, 1984 and thought crime, just that your thoughts can be uh, used against you. For obvious, some obvious uh, and, and maybe banal reasons, I've been thinking a lot of 1984 again, uh, you know, recently. And one of the one of the things since you mentioned 1984, uh, uh, you know, there's so much that Orwell is doing with uh, with language and with ideas uh, 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 about language and the, the use of um, the Cockney rhyming slang as, uh, you know, something that becomes forbidden language, uh, sort of forbidden, forbidden thoughts uh, um, to 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 speak in that way and to use uh, that non-standard, uh, you know, mode. There's something really interesting going on in, in the way that Haas is using Schultz's uh, ideas of language here. But we get that, that really interesting scene with all the birds. And the, uh, and the old man is telling about how you, you have to get away from this language of birds and all their troublesome prepositions and, and everything. And that's, that's this, this moment sort of in the middle of the movie. The bird's language seems to have too much in it, you know, and that that seems to speak to all these other moments of imagination uh, or of one's existence having 
you know, too much, too many spirits within oneself or, you know, too much, too much space, too much uh, and doubling time and all this stuff. Right. Well, the whole idea of Newspeak was to eliminate words so that as eventually you would never even have the word what bad, that it would be ungood <laughs> and that you would just have good, double good, double plus good and those kind of things. And there was also that um, amazing moment where, you know, I was talking about this kind of fetishization of books and where uh, Jacob tells Joseph, do not trust the book, you know, don't don't put your faith into this thing, which if we're to suddenly turn it on its head and say, maybe that book is the Bible. That would be a very interesting thing as well. It's interesting going back to that idea or, or that comparison between Schultz and Kafka, because I think Kafka as uh, you know, I, I, Kafka is about that kind of brutal logic of cause and effect. And that there is a kind of like a hard linearity in some ways, Kafka, where you pursue something right to its bitter end. But I think what's wonderful about Schultz in reading him is that liberation you feel because there's such a profusion of ideas. And I think the world that he describes seems to be, I guess, to his own kind of inner vision of reality. It seems to be just bursting with possibilities. And I think connecting that to that idea of you know, the tragedy of, I guess, artists who were not able to realize their dreams. I mean, for me, I think one of the themes in Schultz is almost like the, it's the tragedy of unrealized potential or unreal, unrealized or unrealizable realities. And I think there's always that sense in Schultz that there is this kind of transcendent reality kind of like lurking at the edges, but that's never able fully to express itself. And I guess we could apply that to the tragedy of Schultz's own life, because I mean, that was pretty much, uh, I mean, quite a frustrated life in many ways. I guess he was somebody who lived in this quite, I guess, what was at the time quite a provincial small town or small city. Um, and I think basically just wrote for himself originally. And it was only kind of later that he, you know, was encouraged to publish the the stories. And then, of course, there was the uh, the Soviet uh, annexation of Drohobych, of his town, um, so he was under that regime. Then there was the Nazi occupation and, of course, the tragic uh, you know, death that he had where he was shot by a, a Gestapo officer. And then, of course, we can apply the same or not the same, but I guess a, a, a also kind of politically uh, conditioned um, situation to Haas as well, where, I mean, it seems that he was not able to realize a lot of the films that he wanted to make. And uh, I guess that that tragedy of kind of unfulfilled potential or of these you know marvels that are out there waiting to happen but that never quite uh, or, or, or very seldom achieve realization i mean it's something that we can apply to the film's own creators i think well the, and the, the i mean as you mentioned the story of schultz's death i'm actually it's quite upsetting when you remind me of uh, of, of that it, it's it's quite it's quite profound and uh, again it, uh, because you know the, the senselessness of of his death i guess i'll um uh, I'll, I'll tell this uh, for for listeners really quickly. One uh, popular version that may not be true. It, it could this could be apocryphal, but one uh, one of the popularly known versions of uh, of, of Schultz's death is um, that um, his, he was this kept Jew by a Nazi who was you know doing artwork for him, and there and this this Nazi got in 
in a fight with another Nazi who also had his own kept Jew. And Bruno Schultz's Nazi murdered the kept Jew of this other Nazi. And so then to get even, the other Nazi came along and murdered Schultz. And there's there's just something so uh, horrifying to me uh, uh, about the absurdity of that story. But in, in, in this notion of, of, uh, of life and death uh, and, and the way that, Sh- that Schultz's work, it is extremely dark, but it is also kind of bizarrely uh, hopeful uh, in a way. And the way that this film from 1973 exists, this final image of our main character, it seems to be at the, at the end, uh, this image of, of his own death going into a grave, but that it, it, it becomes an image of him exiting his own grave uh, into all these these candles. The, the movie, in a way, becomes this alternate time uh, of the hourglass sanatorium that, you know, keeps the father alive and keeps our main character alive and keeps Bruno Schultz alive. What do you guys think about this whole idea of him donning the same uniform as the the train master and having that same ghostly pallor and the idea too, you know, I brought up eyes and sight before there are times throughout the, this movie where he is starting to lose his eyesight. And I think he ends the movie the same way that the conductor was being blind. So here he is wandering out of the cemetery blind in the same outfit, basically adopting the fate of this conductor He's almost like, uh, you know, ferrying the the souls from one place to another. Yeah, I, I definitely got that uh, feeling as well. Really, that resonance uh, of, of or that association. I think with Sharon, the ferryman, and uh, yeah, it was interesting going back to the the story because I'd forgotten that uh, the end of the story is quite similar. Because I think at the end, he's basically just condemned to. I, I don't think he's explicitly turned into a conductor but he's turned into another into a railway worker and he's basically just uh, meant to spend the rest of his days just uh, on the train going back and forth yeah i guess in the movie i guess we could see him as being a kind of like a condemned soul when you look at that figure of the uh, of the conductor himself who does seem to have this vantage point uh in that he often is the kind of the mouthpiece for these ideas about time so maybe we could take something optimistic from that in that this may this position maybe does grant a kind of wisdom or a kind of perspective over things and uh if we're thinking about blindness or if we're thinking about sight i mean maybe it's maybe a, an interior sight or it's an inner sight rather than a physical sight now that is uh, operative yeah that's interesting too because that final shot that uh captures him climbing out of his his own well coded i don't know that it's literally his own grave that's the sort of how i was looking at the coding of it as he crawls out and into the cemetery we have all these candles stacked up uh upon each other offering light and he's staggering around but this idea of sight and then the camera moves back down inside the grave and you know for us it, it we go from uh sight and light back into uh into into darkness as the um finale of the camera move and the finale for for the entire film i have more of a descriptive sense of it and sort of how it feels than um than, than like a, a a take on what is it what does it all mean this is the kind of movie, the kind of artwork where I'm really cool with that because I I, I I do think that like pinning down a particular meaning to it or you know one one kind of uh, you know meaning that we could apply to the 
the whole film would would reduce it and would reduce perhaps i mean i look forward to watching this film again uh would reduce the kind of the different experiences that you can have watching it at different times where something that merely felt really interesting and like gave us a shiver uh but didn't have a a particular meaning on another viewing might take on a meaning because uh we're, we're relating to it differently as far as i've read um in, in terms of Hassi's own intentions, I mean, it does seem that he was concerned to capture, I think he said uh, he wanted to capture the poetics and the atmospherics and the colours of Schultz's world. So I think maybe he himself was not that concerned to offer something that would be this fixed interpretation or that would offer a very definite meaning. And uh, I think he seemed to have encouraged that approach, I think, in his own his own approach to the film. This month... We've covered films from Polanski, from Zulawski, from Borovchuk, and now from Haas. And it's so interesting to see where these filmmakers were at certain times and just where they went to. Last week when we talked about Go to Island of Love, you know, I was told during the, the recording, you know, this isn't necessarily a Polish film because it was done in France. And you look at Polanski going over to um, England and making movies with repulsion and uh, and just the way that he was always moving around and now that he's over in France and the way that Shulavsky, um, you know, you talked about on the Silver Globe and that he starts this project and then it, he has to abandon it. And he ends up, I believe, moving over to France and just that Haas, we talked about him secreting out the film and winning this prize at Cannes and for his uh, honor, he manages to get banned from filmmaking and rather than moving to another country, maybe he's unable to, he is unable to make another film for 10 years. So it's just, just amazing to see the trajectory of all of these filmmakers who kind of started in some of the same places. We're all making films in that late fifties, early sixties. I think the Julowski actually, he was, uh, apprenticing for Vaja at that time, but you know, his first movie was what, 1969, 70 with, um, uh, third part of the night. So they're all kind of ending up at this same place, but just where they're at during these years, you know, in 73, uh, I think to your point, he, um, Julowski was making on the silver globe, the first time at that point, Polanski, I think, is already out of the country. Borovchek is already out of the country. And Haas is the only one who continues to try to make films there. But we won't have an uneventful story until 1983. That this is something that we see over time, that, that uh, there are regimes that create, uh, you know, refugee aesthetics. And I wonder about the degree to which, you know, even, you know, someone... Uh, someone who can make a film that gets them banned from making movies for 10 years. Uh, what is the degree to which, you know, Haas becomes a refugee within his own country and that, mm-hmm. you know, the, that simply the style of following your own imagination means either leaving your, your own country or being stopped from making, making films uh, in this kind of situation. And is the refugee cinema Polish, uh, you know, refugee, refugee from cinema from Poland, you know, are we going to measure it as somehow Polish enough? And I think that becomes like a, a strange additional cruelty uh, to mete out on, on those filmmakers who have their choices but have very, very difficult choices to make. Yes, I think Haas is a really fascinating case in that sense in that he, I think, among, I guess, that, uh, I guess, quartet of 
Polish filmmakers who were, I guess, sort of somewhat against the grain because they were interested in fantasy. They were interested in the imagination, I guess, rather than in the tradi- more traditional territory of history and politics. So, you know, that would be, I guess, uh, Skolimowski, Polanski, Borovczyk, uh, Zhuwaski. Actually, it's five now I think of it. Haas is kind of the odd one out because he's the only one who stays in Poland and I guess manages, I guess, at least for some of the time to operate within that system. He's almost like a fascinating hybrid for me because I guess he is making personal films. He's making films that are about this kind of interior consciousness. And yet he's doing them in quite lavish ways. So, I mean, aesthetically, in some ways, I mean, his films do belong to um, the aesthetics of uh, a lot of other Polish cinema in that it's quite lavish, quite grandiose. And yet it's all in the service of this kind of imaginative interior vision. It's not about politics or about history in a kind of obvious sense or in a, in a literal sense. Looking at, I think looking at the uh, lavishness, I mean, relatively speaking of something like Hourglass Sanatorium and thinking that, I mean, this was made in Poland at this time in 73. So I guess this is like a year after Zhuwaski makes The Devil, which was banned. It's like they would still go ahead and give him the green light to make this and then of course immediately you know immediately condemn it afterwards but the fact that the money was there to make this in the first place i mean it's quite fascinating really and i think that's true in many cases i think across eastern europe that uh, it seems that the, the funding was forthcoming i mean to make these things and uh, at some point i guess the scripts must have been approved and then afterwards there's this whole you know, this whole condemnation that, that comes down on the filmmakers. And you think, well, what was the, you know, what was the sort of vetting procedure like that got them to this point that they could make it? And uh, yeah, I think Silver Globe is another fascinating example, isn't it? I mean, I believe that was the most expensive film that had been made up to that point in Poland. And you think, well, surely, you know, somebody must have read a script and they must have given it the approval. And uh, I guess it's often, you know, different regime, different sort of minister comes in and takes a look at it and, and decides that, yeah, he doesn't approve. And uh, I think just the whole kind of haphazardness of it is really fascinating. I think it's interesting to get into Polish movie posters just a little bit, because uh, we, we were talking about this before we started recording. Uh, you know, the way in which obviously, you know, Polish movie posters are known to be, you know, really remarkable and strange and beautiful. And for instance, there's that uh, Weekend at Bernie's poster that really makes it look like uh, a quite surreal horror film rather than than a comedy. One of the things that's really interesting is that that tradition of, of freedom with imagery, it's so it's so fascinating to me that the political regime of uh, of this time is is uh, is going to run filmmakers out of out of the country and uh, and put somebody out of business for such a long time for this like imaginative, strange, surreal work, when, when we find that there is this tradition going way back to the Polish theater of, uh, of the, 19, the, the teens and the 20s and 30s, uh, and that the, the, uh, the Polish movie poster uh, tradition comes out of that, that, the, that these are so bizarre and beautiful and imaginative and like such a different way to think about, you know, in particular cinema, but think about storytelling, like reducing a story to this, this single image you know, as I was saying before we got started recording, this this was a movie where there's real truth in advertising for uh, a Polish movie poster. That this is this is a movie that matches that that wonderful bizarre quality. Uh, but the the fact of the matter is there there was that wonderful bizarre imagination going on alongside. Uh, and, and I guess it was okay and it was safe for a poster, but not for an entire imaginative film. The poster again for this just 
that huge eyeball and the skull face that goes under it. I mean, this is one of the most captivating posters that you're going to wander across. I mean, the first time I saw this, this is one of those posters where it's like, what is the movie that inspired this poster? I have to see this. Absolutely. Yeah, what a wild poster. I don't know. I love I love that tradition of Polish movie posters. The one the one, for instance, from a few years later uh, for for Star Wars, which is this uh, alternative Darth Vader, but with uh, these hard shapes uh, kind of uh, springing from his head. Uh, there's there's something about that where it's it's grabbing, uh, you know, an image that comes from the movie and combining it with with other shapes from that film that I think is actually like a kind of amazing work of film criticism. And in a way that that eyeball that becomes a skull for this poster, you know, works works along similar lines. This this reduction that's that's like a form of criticism. Mm, yeah, I think they were quite heavy on metaphor, weren't they? And on that use of, uh, I guess, objects to create kind of like humanoid images. And uh, there's a great one for um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know if you've seen that one where I think it's a bullwhip that's been kind of like turned into a kind of human face with a hat on it. Yes. And when I when I was lucky enough to be teaching film once, I did uh, kind of like do a guessing game. I kind of set up a guessing game with that as to, you know, can you guess the film that it is? And I think one person got it. But uh, so I guess it just gives you enough just to kind of get something from the film in it. But uh, Yes, it's just fascinating that they were given that freedom. And uh, I guess because it was not operating in a market system, I guess it seems that there was not too much concern about, you know, whether this will entice people to see the film or whether this will be, you know, considered as false advertising or... I feel a bit shortchanged maybe. I I think it's some of the movies because they just cannot live up to the the posters, really. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, What what movie can live up to one of those posters? But we have that tradition in America with... uh, with exploitation film posters, which can be so, so beautiful, and amazing and suggest wonders. And, you know, uh, every so often you get a movie like Street Trash that truly lives up to its poster. But it's quite rare. The poster for Alien is one of my favorites where it's like, it looks like a rib cage, maybe, or a nervous system. And also there are eyes right in the middle. And it's just like, what is this thing? This is amazing. I guess the other thing as well is that there is also that direct relationship, isn't there, between filmmaking and poster art, because you had both Borovchik and Lenitsa coming from that tradition and then going into filmmaking. And so I guess bringing that sensibility directly into cinema. I found it interesting. There was a, a poll in 2015 uh, conducted by the Polish Museum of Cinematography and just seeing out of the top 10 that both the Sargosa manuscript and the uh, Hourglass Sanatorium were ranked two and five on this list of the top ten films that uh, apparently Polish people feel are the the best ones, or at least the folks from this uh, Museum of Cinematography. Um, and I do have to say that there are a lot of movies on this list that I am not familiar with that I now need to check out. I mean, what what can top the Sargos manuscripts, you know. <laughs> so there's a, there's a lot of of Vajia on this list. There's uh, some Kieslowski, but you know, and there's even uh, Knife in the Water. But 
now I'm very curious to check out the rest of these. That's quite interesting because I think often the films from a particular country that are popular or that are well-known internationally did not always align with what's popular domestically. So I think that, that I guess, is a tribute to Wojciech Haas. The films, I guess, obviously speak to audiences both in Poland and in, internationally. So I think that is quite an achievement, really, to kind of uh, harmonize the, the national and the international audiences in that way. Yeah, I don't know what the Polish equivalent of like Airbud would be, but that's not on this list. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't guess. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview of next week's show after these brief messages. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts catchers both android and ios le doule c'est le chapeau et le porteur de doule c'est le doulos s'il y a un porte le doule c'est à dire qu'aux yeux des gens du milieu il en croque je crois qu'on n'a plus rien à se dire il est tard attends on a autre chose à te demander pas me confondre avec les gens qui rentrent dans votre bureau en marche arrière j'en croque pas moi le doulos est un indicateur de police. Passez-moi l'inspecteur Salignari. Qui m'a balancé On le craint, on tente de ne pas le fréquenter. Alors, c'est ça le fameux Cilien Cilien est un truc correct. C'est pas ce qu'on dit à Paris. Le doulos jouit d'un statut particulier, tant dans le milieu qu'à la grande maison. En somme, quand on ne vous aide pas, vous êtes perdu. Ce n'est pas un hors-la-loi ordinaire, mais sa vie est plus dangereuse. Dans ce métier, on finit toujours clochard ou avec quelques balles dans la peau. Je trouve cette ordure de Cilien. J'ai peur. Si tu me connaissais comme beaucoup me connaissent, tu n'aurais pas peur de rester avec moi. Le doulos, une tragédie du mensonge. Le mystère à l'état pur. Un homme pris au piège. 
le doulos, où vous ferez la connaissance de Silien, Maurice, Klein, Fabienne, Thérèse, Gilbert, Nutetchio. Un film de Jean-Pierre Melville. Prochainement sur cet écran. That's right, we're starting off French Month with a look at Jean-Pierre Melville's Les Doulo. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jonathan and Spencer. So, Jonathan, what has been keeping you busy lately? Uh, well, I'm still uh, working on um, the Czech film Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea. So that's one uh, project in the pipeline. And um, I've um, also written a um, um, booklet for um, the upcoming release of the Czech film Distant Journey, which is a great uh, Czech Holocaust uh, drama from the late 40s. And I believe, uh, Mike, you did a commentary for that as well. So yes, this is kind of like a, a wonderful pooling of all our abilities and of all our uh, <laughs> expertise. So uh, I think this is due to be released at the end of May, if I'm correct, from second run. Um, so yeah, I really uh, recommend that everybody checks that out because it's really quite a unique um, unique film, I think, for its time. Uh, another project that I've been involved in uh, is something that's been organized by um, uh, a friend and colleague of mine, uh, Irena Kovajuba, and she's doing a series of uh, uh, Czech films uh, that are being hosted by the um, New York Czech Center. And so these are going to be streamed um, over um, four weeks from I think from uh, April the 23rd to May the 14th show. So she's going to be uh, basically streaming uh, four Czech comedies. And then I'm going to be joining her for discussion uh, for the last of those screenings on May the 14th. Yeah, I'm going to be uh, posting links to that on uh, Facebook and on Twitter. Um, I think you can go also to the Czech Center website for the New York Czech Center. And there'll be some information about that there as well. And uh, yeah, I guess the aim is to sort of cheer everybody up by showing uh, wonderful Czech comedies. Um, I think the first one will be um, Baron Munchausen, the, the Carol Zeman Baron Munchausen. So yeah, I think we'll have something nice to watch uh, during lockdown. And Spencer, how have you been living in lockdown? I was doing a rewrite um, to cut down pages for the, the film that I'm planning to shoot this summer. Uh, but obviously, that is a real open question, whether we will be shooting uh, this summer. So I, um, I've been working on that. And then I've also sort of turned my attention to a kind of crazy and can be shot with anything project uh, that I've, I've been writing at for a while thinking about, well, you know, if I can't make, if, if, uh, if conditions are not okay to make a legitimate movie this summer or soon, is there another project that I can pivot to that doesn't, um, doesn't, doesn't require the same kinds of resources. So, uh, yeah, dealing with a lot of uncertainty and, you know, learning to do zoom faculty meetings with, um, uh, my colleagues at Northwestern and, um, advising uh advising my my students um you know via skype and zoom and all our different uh technologies and kind of hating that and really wanting to get back to face to face so that's that's my story well thank you so much guys for being on the show thanks everybody for listening please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode you also find a link over to patreon where you can make a donation to the show every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world 
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.